We are at our penultimate sermon in this summer series looking at Romans chapter 8. Today, uh, looking at verses 33 and 34. Um, And as has been our custom, we will read the entire chapter up to that point. I thank you for your um, diligence, uh, your patience as we read those lengthy portions each week. I think it's important In particular, in a chapter like this, which is the logic is so airtight and every uh, verse uh, follows logically from the preceding. And so I think our understanding is is helped greatly as we refresh ourselves each week on what Paul's already said. Uh, But I feel the need to to especially thank you for your patience since uh, last night I had a nightmare where you all stood up and left in the middle of the sermon because it was too long. Uh, preachers have nightmares like that. Usually it's I, I show up and I forgot my sermon or I show up late. This was the first time where in mass the entire congregation just said, no, we're done. And I pleaded with you to come back. I'm still, I'm still shocked. I'm still kind of, it's a bit traumatic for me. Um, so thank you for your patience and, um, and for not getting up and leaving. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body's dead because of sin, the spirit's life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And now for our consideration this morning, verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Well, the great reformer Martin Luther was plagued with spiritual doubts for much of his life. He often felt uh, assailed and assaulted by the devil himself, who would continually dredge up Luther's past sins and his weaknesses and his shortcomings and um, place them at the, the front of his conscience, leaving Luther in a, a depression. And Luther wrote about this internal struggle often, and he uh, referred to it as his um, Anfeshten. That's a German word, Anfeshten, uh, that doesn't have an exact English equivalent. Often you'll see it translated as something like anxiety, um, his anxiety or his affliction. Uh, perhaps that's too simple a translation because the word actually connotes a contest, even a uh, attack. At, at its root is the verb, German verb for fencing. So on Festen, this this internal fight comes from the word Festen, which means to fence. And so this was the cause of Luther's spiritual depression. He felt he was in a duel against the devil. He felt he was in a duel against the devil. Writes one biographer, what Luther felt was an assault by the devil to destroy him. Now, many Christians have experienced this, this infestion themselves um, at some point or another. I wonder if, if you... Count yourselves among that number who have been in a duel with the devil. Maybe you 
never thought of it in those terms before. We uh, now, some uh, 500 years after the Reformation, we don't uh, necessarily think the way that our forefathers thought in terms of uh, spirituality. That's not really a part of our our worldview. We don't often think about demonic forces, and so. Uh, Maybe when we're struggling with things like that, we think of it as an internal conflict with our, our conscience. But um, notice Paul would agree with Luther, or maybe I should say Luther is picking up something from Paul, because in the verses that we're looking at, 33 and 34, Paul does not say, what can bring a charge against God's elect? He doesn't say your guilty conscience. He doesn't say the law of God, although those things certainly do that. We feel that God's law or our conscience condemns us. He doesn't say what, though. He says who. Who could bring a charge? And he says, who can condemn? The apostle has in mind here the one who is known as the accuser of the brethren. Revelation twelve ten. This is what he does. He accuses God's people. The devil is the one who tells you that you are not good enough for God. Or maybe the, we could put it this way. The devil is the one who tells you to tell yourself, I'm not good enough. My sin is too great. I'm, I'm too much of a wretch. There's no way God could love me. And so the devil, armed with a guilty conscience, your guilty conscience, is an intimidating sparring partner. And that's why these two verses from Romans 8 are so wonderfully helpful for the Christian. Because what Paul does in these two verses is he gives us two helps as we engage in that spiritual fencing match, he gives us two facts that are like pieces of impenetrable armor that we can put on, knowing that we, when we are arrayed, arrayed in this truth, no one, not even the devil himself, can defeat us. No, the devil can't, not all the forces of hell, and not even we ourselves in our own sense of guilt and unworthiness. That's what we find here. Two helps to that end. Uh, you'll recall from last time, it was two weeks ago, we started looking at Paul's conclusion, and he concludes Romans 8 with five questions. And we looked at the first two last time. You remember verses 31 and 32. If God's for us, who can be against us? That's the first question. And then the second one is, if he gave us Jesus, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And now we come to question three and question four. And they draw us, both of these questions, as you look at them, draw us into a particular setting. And the setting is a cosmic courtroom. We're in a courtroom where we are to picture ourselves standing on trial with Satan himself leading the, pro the prosecution against us in an airtight case. And that's scary. It's a scary thought. But then Paul gives us these two helps. Here they are. When you're in that match against the devil, when he's com coming at you with all that he's got to condemn you, to say you're not worthy, Paul says, when you're in that courtroom and you see the devil as, as your accuser, do these two things. Look up and see who the judge is and look beside and see who your advocate is. Look up and see the judge and look beside you and see the advocate. So first, dear Christian, consider that God is our justifying judge. That's the first thing. 
our justifying judge. Verse 33, Paul asks, who can bring a charge against God's elect? And if you remember from the prior two questions as well, um, it's not that nobody can do this. This isn't a question of ability. Who can do this? The The devil can and does bring charges against us. It's a question of efficacy, uh, effectiveness, right? Who can do this effectively? And Paul's argument here is that no prosecution can stand, can succeed. And why? It's because we've been justified by God. So Paul asks, who can bring a charge against God's elect? And he doesn't give an answer. The silent assumed answer is nobody, no one. But then he gives us a reason, a reason why nobody can do it. And the reason is because God is the one who justifies. God is the one, and indeed the only one, who can declare a sinner righteous. That's what it means to justify someone, or to be justified. It means to be declared righteous. And it means that not only are we found not guilty according to God's law, but we're also considered to have kept it perfectly. The Heidelberg Catechism says that wonderfully in the question about justification. It says that God forgives us of our sins, but then he treats us as though we had kept his law as perfectly as Jesus had kept it. We're we're declared righteous. This is what God says of us in the gospel. And all our anxiety, our unease, that unfeshton, our anxiety, our unease, and our trembling in the Christian life is oftentimes on account of the fact that we forget this. We remember, and we do well to remember, that God is the judge Uh, The ultimate judge, that's a truth stated numerous places in Scripture. We won't look at them today. We remember that, but then we leave it at that. But the Bible doesn't leave it at that. The Bible doesn't only say that God's the judge. No, he's our judge and our justifier. So what does that mean? How is this the reason behind Paul's claim that no one can mount a successful prosecution against a Christian against the elect. Well, he's saying if, if our greatest offense is against God, which it is, if he is the one with whom we ultimately will have to give an account, which he is, if though this one whom we've sinned against, the one that we owe allegiance to, is himself also the one who says we are acquitted, well, then who could possibly change the verdict? He knows all that we've done. He knows all our offenses. He knows every infraction of uh, the law because he's the one who gave the law. And even so, he says we're righteous. And you're going to doubt him? You're not going to believe him? He of all people can say this of you, and he does say it of you. James Boyce puts it like this. He knows us in every particular. He knows our outward sins and our inward sins. He knows the sins of our heart as well as the sins of our minds. He knows the sins we would have done had we given the chance to do them. He knows the sins we seek out opportunities to commit. He knows our sins against others and our sins against ourselves. Nothing is outside the scope of God's knowledge. Nevertheless, knowing all of this, God justifies us. He justifies us. And so acknowledging God as judge at one point in the Christian experience, or maybe I should just say in our experience before Christ, acknowledging God as, as judge could only make us tremble. That's the only thing it can do. It can make us terrified and, and, and make our, our, our knees quiver. 
But when you're a Christian, you, you, you see that God being judge is the, the sweetest news there is, the most assuring news there is, because the one who will give a verdict at the last day is also the one who says, I'm going to justify you. In fact, I have justified you in the person of Jesus Christ. Who better to judge us? What better judge could we have reviewing our case than the judge who has promised our justification? You know, if you're used to watching uh, courtroom dramas or legal procedurals, you'll know that uh, the, the attorneys are very interested in discovering which judge gets assigned their case because they recognize that um, the person behind the bench is not just an impartial adjudicator of the law, um, but rather, uh, even though they try to be impartial, they bring their personalities, they bring um, their background, they bring their track record uh, into the courtroom. And so, you know, um, some judges are known for being lax on drug offenses, or some judges are known for being really strict uh, against uh, juvenile delinquents and cases against them. And so that's why lawyers are, are always hoping we get a judge assigned our case who is biased towards us. Christian, that's who you have. You have a judge who's biased towards you. A judge who wants to see you declared not guilty. A judge who says, I will on the last day declare you not guilty. Our judge is our justifier. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. God's on our side. We have the best judge that we could ever wish for. Now that answer, who can bring a charge against God's elect, it's kind of embedded in the question. I wonder if you notice that. Look again at the question Paul asks and the way he frames it. Who can bring a charge against, what does he say? He says God's elect What does it mean to be elect? It means that we're chosen and we're precious in God's sight. So how will the judge condemn those whom he has chosen before all time to be with him for all time? And the title, elect, bolsters our assurance as we're reminded that we belong to God, not because of anything we've done, but simply because God's chosen us to be his. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a wonderful pastoral note at this point. He says, do you habitually think of yourself as one of God's elect, one of God's chosen people? He says, many of our troubles arise from the fact that we do not think of ourselves in this way and that we think of the Christian as one who's decided for Christ. But the emphasis should be the other way around. If we learn to think of ourselves in these terms with the dignity and everything else that belongs to the position of being elect, it will revolutionize our Christian life and all our thinking. Oh, what unworthy views we often have of the Christian. We say he's a good man or one trying to live a good life or one who's taken his decision. All emphasis is on the man, but that's not the apostle's teaching. A Christian is one of God's elect. Chosen. Precious, we have the favor of the judge. He is the one who justifies, who can bring a charge then against God's elect. Well, as we move to the next verse, we see the next question, and with that question comes the next help. Paul has gotten us to look up and to see the judge as none other than our justifier. Now he gets us to look beside 
us and to see standing with us Christ, our assuring advocate. We have God, the justifying judge, Christ, the assuring advocate. Who is to condemn? Again, the unspoken answer is no one. And really, the, the question's already been answered, right? Because if you can't bring a charge against somebody, you certainly can't condemn them. And yet this question gives Paul an opportunity to lay out yet another reason for us to have assurance. Another reason why our assurance is unassailable. And the reason provided is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. Who's to condemn? And then no one is the implied answer. And then he says, Christ Jesus is what? Well, he gives us four things here in this verse that, that help us to see why it is that Jesus can fulfill this special role of giving us assurance, uh, of, of um, uh, giving us this conviction and this certainty that when he's on our side as our advocate, as our attorney, doesn't matter what the other side tries to do, that we can know that we have a case that will be won. Paul highlights four things about this Savior. He says he's the one who died, the one who's raised, the one who reigns, and the one who's interceding. The one who died, the one who's raised, the one who reigns, and the one who's interceding. And these all help us to see how we are secure in God. First, we can be sure that we will not be condemned because Christ Jesus is the one who died. Tell Satan that he's wasting his breath as he uh, mounts his accusations against you. Uh, take him back to Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Because he's the one who was condemned in our place. The wages of sin is death, and Christ Jesus is the one who died. He died for our sin, took death in our place. Augustus Toplady is famous for the hymn, uh, Rock of Ages. He has another lesser-known hymn where he captures the logic of Romans 8.34. The hymn is entitled Faith Reviving, and this is one of the stanzas. He's singing to Christ. He says, If thou hast my release procured and freely in my place endured... The whole of wrath divine, if that's true, if you've released me from my prison and if you have endured the wrath of God in my place, then this is what he says. Payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Payment God cannot twice demand. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. He's the one who died. The debt has been paid. And God cannot say, yes, I see he paid it, but I want some more from you. Payment, God cannot twice demand. First at my bleeding's surety hands, and then again at mine. This is the logic we cling to. Christ was condemned for me. I cannot be condemned. Christ died. I will live. But he's also the one who was raised. There's more, Paul says. This helps us to know that his payment was enough, right? How can I know God was pleased with his sacrifice? Because not only is he the one who died, Paul goes on to say more than that, he is the one who was raised. The resurrection is the vindication of the Son of God. It's the proof positive that he is righteous and therefore unable to be held by death. And it is in rising that he's justified us freely forever. 
right? Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. Romans 4, 25. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I wonder if you've ever, you know, when, when money's been tight, if you've ever been to the grocery store or somewhere and, you know, you, you need to get things and you, you've given the cashier um, the, 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 the debit card kind of with a cold sweat because you're not sure if it's going to go through. Is this just me? Right? This ever happened? Right? And you're... You're kind of thinking, you're doing some, some silent math, and you're thinking, well, did that bill get processed, and did, they, did that deposit come in yet? And you're, you're just wondering, and you're hoping that they're not going to say, oh, the card was declined. The resurrection is the proof that the payment went through. The payment went through. There's a third ground from the person of Christ for our assurance. Not only is he the one who died, and the one who... Tells us that that death was enough through his resurrection. He's also the one who is reigning in heaven. Paul says Jesus is the one who's at the right hand of God. Uh, this is kingly language, um, but it's more than that. It's also completion language. What do I mean by that? Well, elsewhere in the scriptures, when we read of Jesus being at the right hand of God, we're told he's seated there. Uh, look with me uh, to Hebrews. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 11, where there's this contrast between the work of the priests of old who are standing and then the work of our great high priest who's sitting. Hebrews 10, verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. At the right hand of God. The work is complete. The priests were standing up going to and fro because the sacrifice of bulls and goats could never atone for sin. So they're always offering up more and more sacrifice. But he, Jesus, on the cross offered a once for all sacrifice. And so now he sits down as the conquering king. The one who's completed his quest. And your salvation is as, is as steady, is as secure as the throne that he sits on. Never to be toppled. Never to be moved. Who could dare bring a complaint to the king who has now taken up his seat and said, it is finished. He says that about you and about me. The work is done and they're mine forever. He's at the right hand of God. And if that all wasn't enough, we're told one more thing. Jesus is also the one who is interceding for us. Having done everything to secure our salvation and our eternal home and glory, he continues now to daily pray uh, to the Father on our behalf that we would enjoy all the blessings of our salvation, all the benefits that come in the gospel. There is no sin too great. There's no problem too small that our Savior does not take up as a matter of personal prayer. Isn't that an astounding thought? There's not one issue that you go through that Jesus does not respond with, I'll be praying for you. Indeed, he always lives to make intercession. And we know that, that the Father 
hears this intercession, hears his prayer because he is righteous, because he's sinless. In closing here, I want, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 50. Because this is a passage that Paul is almost certainly quoting in Romans chapter 8. Isaiah 50, verse 7. And we want to know, or what we're learning here is, is why it is that, that Jesus has the open ear of the Father. And it's because he is, is so at peace with the Father. Because he knows he's righteous. He knows he's sinless. He knows he's perfect. He knows that then God will hear him. So this is... One of the songs of Yahweh's faithful servant, there are several of those in Isaiah, and he's singing about being perfectly innocent and righteous, yet nevertheless he's charged with guilt from his enemies. But in the end, he resigns himself peacefully to the judge. I'm beginning in verse 7, I'm reading from the New King James here. It says, For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. That's kind of, uh, that's, as we would say, then be fighting words. Let us stand together. Let's face off here. Let's, let's fight. Who's my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who can condemn me? Sound familiar? And sound like Romans 8? Well, this is, uh, a servant that's prophesied here is it, it, he's none other than Jesus Christ. And it's very easy for us to apply uh, this me- messianic truth to, to Jesus because he is so clearly the innocent one who was, though, accused nevertheless and yet silent before his accusers because he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Do you remember that language? First Peter 1. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. But when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is so clearly talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who, who, who doesn't get worried. Who can condemn me? I know that my vindication, my justification comes from God. I'm not worried in the least. And we can say, well, good for you, Jesus, because you're sinless. We get it. But you know what Paul does that's so brilliant, so pastorally brilliant, is that he quotes Isaiah 50, and he doesn't say this is about Jesus. He says this is about you and me. He applies it to the whole church. Right? Jesus is the one who is initially... Fulfilled here, I mean, the fulfillment is in Jesus. One says, who can condemn me? But then Paul's the one who says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who can condemn God's elect? Friends, what we're learning here is when, when you have faith in Christ, all that is his is yours. The peace that he has before the judge is a peace that you and I have as well. Do you have that peace Today, have you given over your case to this assuring advocate who says, I'm going to stand up for you in that great tribunal on the last day, and I'm going to say, treat this, this dear brother, this dear sister as you would treat me. Have you given your case over to the advocates? What are you waiting for? My friends, I want you to know that when you see the salvation of Christ in all of its fullness, in all of its completeness, all that God has won for you in Christ, when you live in that truth, 
you will silence the accuser. You will enjoy the sweetness of gospel assurance. And you will have no fear. I want to give John Newton the final word this morning. He says, how precious is this Savior? How justly is he entitled to the chief place in the hearts of those who know him? In the work of salvation from the first step to the last, he's all in all. If he had not died and risen again, we must have died forever. If he had not ascended into heaven there to appear in the presence of God for us, we must have been thrust down into hell. If he did not plead for us, we could not, we dare not offer a word up on our own behalf. If he was not on our side, engaged to keep us all day and all night, our enemies would soon be too hard for us. May we therefore give him the glory to his name and cling to him and trust in him alone. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the assurance that it gives us as we are assailed by the accuser of the brethren who tries to tell us we're not good enough and uh, that our sins are too great for us to be accepted in your sight. And yet, countering that now, we have these wonderful truths that we can use to defend us and to bolster our assurance that we have a, a justifier as our judge and we have Christ as our advocate Keep us from the despair of our own sin. Keep us from doubting our acceptance and help us to cling to the truth that we have discovered today and that this would cause our faith to grow and our assurance to blossom. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.